if any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact, fact that you have lawsuits the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and do this on, to your own brothers and sisters. Or do you not know the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Shall we pray together? Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that this morning, as we, we look at Paul's words to the first century church, that you would speak to us today, the 21st century church, that you would speak to us, that you would change us and transform us into your disciples in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to continue today our series looking at 1 Corinthians. And we've had a little bit of a break, so I just want to do a, a recap. We haven't been in this letter for three weeks now due to Pentecost and the baptism and confirmation services. But as we looked at the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, we saw that Corinth was an important Greek city. It was a port and a commercial centre, wealthy, worldly and competitive, self-indulgent, a consumer-oriented culture. And into this melting pot came Paul and the gospel message. And after he had established the church in Corinth and moved on, Paul had been informed of issues within the church and asked questions 
on points that needed clarifying. And this letter is written in response. Three weeks ago, Pads showed us in the previous chapter, chapter 5, that Paul had been dealing with a specific case of sexual immorality in uncompromising terms. And he's particularly outraged at the complacency of the church towards the situation. And in this chapter, he continues in much the same tone. And you might want to have your Bibles open, as in previous weeks we are going to look at the whole of chapter 6, and it can be found on page 1147 of the Church Bibles. One thing you may have noticed as we looked at this reading is how many questions there are in this passage. I counted 13 in total. And I don't know about you, but sometimes the right question at the right time can really make me stop and think. Why am I doing or saying that when I know or I believe this? And in this chapter, there are six questions starting, do you not know? Paul spent 18 months with the church at Corinth, more than any other church that he established, explaining the gospel, showing believers their new identity and responsibilities in Christ. And these six questions are really reminders of things that Paul has taught them, and they should know. But their behaviour suggests otherwise. So let's look at these six questions as a bit of a framework for this chapter. The first two, do you not know questions? Do you not know the Lord's people will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Whoa. The Greeks had a love of going to law. They were proud, assertive, competitive people. And they brought these tendencies into the early church. The world was invading church. The civil courts of the day were pretty corrupt. Magistrates were open to bribes and sweeteners to reach certain decisions. This incensed Paul. Why would Christians take a dispute before a secular corruptible court. These two questions show that Christians are destined for higher places when the kingdom of God is fully established. And that may be a subject for further study. Maybe home groups might like to dig into that. In the world to come, we will be involved. So what about now? If we have such a high calling... Surely we can handle our own much more trivial cases rather than asking others who don't even believe what we believe to judge. How good a witness is this to non-believers if we can't use the wisdom and the love in the church to sort things out? He makes a radical suggestion. Why can't you just let yourselves be wronged or cheated? 
and not try to get back at somebody. That's what Jesus preached. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Someone takes something, give him something more. It's an interesting question to ponder, isn't it? How far do we go to assert our rights? What are our motives when we seek so-called justice? What message would letting it go give to the world? There are several possible motives that the Corinthians may have had for lawsuits, and none of them spoke of love for one another. Pride, revenge, greed, exercising of power, competitiveness, downright cheating, and all this with their own brothers and sisters. And Paul's accusation that believers were cheating each other links with his next do-you-not-know question. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And by this, Paul doesn't mean the occasional sin quickly repented of, which we all experience every day. He's saying, don't be deceived into thinking that it's acceptable to carry on blatant, habitual unrepentant sinning. Many of the believers in Corinth were, from a background as described in this passage, swindlers, slanderers, cheats, greedy, drunken. But Paul is saying, come on church, wake up and smell the coffee. This is not who you are anymore. You are a new creation. And verse 11, smack bang in the middle of this chapter, says who we are. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart by God for his purposes. You were justified, proclaimed innocent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And we saw a powerful witness to that last last Sunday here, didn't we, in church, at the baptism and confirmation service. But if being added to the Lord's number, for that's what happens when we put our faith in Jesus, is not resulting in changes of behaviour, attitudes towards others and lifestyle choices that mark us out as different then what is going on? We might say well I'm none of those things I don't, I'm not a swindler Have you ever been undercharged in a shop or a restaurant? What was your response? Did you feel uncomfortable and put things right immediately? Or did you celebrate at getting an unexpected windfall? Are you always looking to beat someone down in price for your own gain? Or are you prepared to pay fairly or even generously if you're able? The Corinthians were obsessed with autonomy and freedom. And many of them had a confused view 
of what freedom in Christ looked like, saying, I've got the right to do anything. And Paul responded, yes, but not everything is beneficial. He was not satisfied with the lowest common denominator approach to his daily behaviour. He wanted everything new believers did to have a positive effect on their lives and the lives of others. How would it be if we deliberately examined our habits to determine the effects on our lives and the lives of others we come into contact with? How would it affect our witness if we examined ourselves in this way? The Corinthians were very insistent on their rights, but Paul saw Jesus as the only one with rights over his life. He wouldn't allow his person or his behaviour to be controlled by any force other than Jesus. What do we allow to master us? Pad spoke very honestly of being prompted to cut out alcohol when he felt it was becoming too much of a habit in his life. And I've stopped watching a certain TV series that I really enjoy, but the really casual, throwaway approach to sex began to make me feel uncomfortable, as if watching this was not really doing me any good. Neither of these things are forbidden in themselves. Things like leisure and sport are great, but they can become addictive and take us away from Jesus. We do have the freedom to decide how to live our lives. But if we give the Holy Spirit free reign, he'll prompt and guide us. We're free to be all we can be for God, but we're not free from God. The final three, do you not know, questions all relate to the body. And the Greeks had three attitudes to the body. And they all begin with I, which is good to, easy to remember. They would indulge their bodies, maybe with food or drink or sex. They would ignore their bodies, believing them to be transient, nothing to do with their soul in the grand scheme of things. Or they would idolise it. They had statues of naked bodies everywhere. Their sports were all performed naked so that people could look on the beauty of the naked form. That didn't work for Paul. God has a holy purpose for our bodies. The Christian lifestyle is more than about what goes on within. Our bodily contact outside in the world can either represent or dishonour the Lord. And what we do with our bodies affects the whole person and those we come into contact with. We, we read and we maybe know ourselves the lasting effect that any abuse of our body can have on our whole person. And it has a ripple effect on others. What's your attitude to your body? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? A dramatic reminder that we are part of Christ and he is part of us. We take him with us wherever we go. 
which is food for thought. Corinth was home to the temple of the goddess of love, Aphrodite, and it employed over a thousand prostitutes as priestesses. That was acceptable and popular in that culture. A friend of ours went to India on business and told of receiving a menu card in his hotel room offering a variety of sexual options, apparently all part of the standard service. It was normal. But Christians in the first century and down the years to today are called to be different. Paul reminds us that in sexual union two become one. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? In effect, we're then joining Jesus to a prostitute as our bodies are part of Christ. Paul urges fleeing sexual immorality, deliberately deciding to go in the other direction. This would have been a real challenge for the Corinthians. They were facing temptation on every corner. Anything goes in Corinth. But is it not the same today? I heard a story in a preach years ago when I first became a Christian on this subject, and it's really stayed with me. Two people met on a train, commuting to London every day. They were both married to other people. But they began chatting and looked forward to seeing each other every day. They got closer and closer. And warning bells started to ring for one of them. One day, they took the difficult decision to take another train. Sometimes we just need to take another train. Paul and I used to volunteer for a charity called Explore, which went into schools and school children could talk and ask couples about their marriage. It's quite challenging, as you can imagine. I remember facilitating a group of sixth formers who were questioning a young married couple. The husband said he made the point of not going for drinks with female colleagues, which was difficult if he'd worked closely with them on a project and he wanted to unwind. But he sensed that the closeness of work could spill over into something more personal. And he wanted to protect his marriage. This had a strong impact on the students. They couldn't believe that someone would intentionally do this. What a great witness. How intentional are we in avoiding temptation? So often we hear, oh, I, I don't know how it happened. It just crept up on me. And, and, all of, and then before I knew it, I was in over my head. How intentional are we? The final question comes with a reminder to the Corinthians and us of the cost of our redemption and subsequent responsibilities. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? There's been a changing of the guard. God used to have a temple for his people and now he has a people for his temple. 
We belong to Jesus, who paid a high ransom for us with his life. You often hear believers say, I gave my life to Christ. And both we and the Corinthians are not to try and take it back and live it for ourselves. When the fruit of the Holy Spirit is developing in us, we will have clearly visible physical behaviours towards others, serving them and not seeking anything from them. A little later, after we've shared in Holy Communion together, we are going to pray. We offer you our souls and our bodies to be a living sacrifice. Send us out in the power of your Holy Spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. This is what Paul wanted for the church in Corinth. A people honouring God and each other with their whole person. Allowing the Holy Spirit to flow freely. If each one of us can pray that prayer this morning and really mean it, let it shape all that we do and say, then if Paul came to this 21st century church, he would find many disciples loving God and each other, witnesses for the Lord in the bringing in of the kingdom. Amen. Oh,